Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. On our weekly roundtable, Juneteenth is now a national holiday, a step forward, many say, but is it also an, an opportunity for Republicans who voted for it to hide their ongoing attempts to chip away at the hard-fought rights of black people? And what about the attempts to suppress, and in some cases, even attempt to criminalize the teaching of black and brown history in, to, in schools and universities across the United States? And battles continue in Washington, D.C. around uh, the right to vote. Uh, the For the People Act is in some trouble, and also the George Floyd police reform bill. What happened after so-named emancipation, including the first Reconstruction and its destruction? And is a third Reconstruction needed? The Supreme Court has made some controversial rulings, and the much-anticipated Putin-Biden summit is over. Our panelists give their thoughts on what came out of it, as well as what came out of the recent G7 meetings and the wider implications. Also, the latest on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and recent elections in Chile and Peru. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Biden has signed Juneteenth into law as the nation's newest federal holiday. Most of the country's more than 2 million federal workers will get a paid day off today. The nation's first black vice president, Kamala Harris, was at Biden's side as he signed the legislation. Mary Sherman reports. Vice President Kamala Harris stood beside President Joe Biden as he signed a bill creating Juneteenth National Independence Day, commemorating the end of slavery. Juneteenth has been known by many names. Jubilee Day, Freedom Day, Liberation Day, Emancipation Day, and today, a national holiday. On June 19, 1865, in Galveston, Texas, a general delivered news of the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been signed more than two years earlier. Federal employees were given today off work in observance. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. The Democratic-led House of Representatives, with the backing of President Biden, has voted to repeal the 2002 authorization for use of military force in Iraq. Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee said the vast majority of current House members weren't even in the Congress when lawmakers approved what's known as the AUMF, allowing then-President Bush to go to war against Iraq. The Bush administration, yes, misled the American people by saying there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, that Iraq posed an imminent threat, and by drawing a false connection between the tragic events of 9-11 and Saddam Hussein. Those lies and misinformation had deadly consequences. The mistakes continue to haunt us today. Our endless war continues costing trillions of dollars and thousands of lives in a war that goes way beyond any scope that Congress conceived or intended. 
The vote to repeal the War Powers Resolution was 268 to 161. 49 Republicans joined the Democratic majority. One Democrat, Elaine Luria of Virginia, voted no. Lee says the 2001 resolution to fight terrorism, which was passed by lawmakers after the September 11th attacks, should be repealed also. It has been used by a series of presidents to engage the U.S. in military conflicts around the globe without congressional authorization. Palestinians protested after Friday prayers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem. They briefly clashed with Israeli police. Police, though, refrained from entering the compound and appeared to act with more restraint than earlier this spring, possibly on the orders of Israel's newly sworn-in government. Still, health officials said two Palestinians were wounded by rubber-coated steel bullets and a third by a thrown stone. The Palestinian protest was a response to a rally held by right-wing Jewish ultranationalists on Tuesday in occupied East Jerusalem. Dozens had chanted death to Arabs and may your village burn. Online video showed some of the ultranationalists denigrating the Prophet Muhammad. In Gaza, Israeli airstrikes hit Hamas targets once again last night after Palestinians launched incendiary balloons into southern Israel to respond to the ultranationalist march in East Jerusalem. Seattle police arrested 10 protesters at the port. They had blocked an Israeli-owned Zim vessel from unloading its cargo. The blockade by about 150 protesters followed a similar action in Oakland earlier this month. Seattle City Councilmember Kashama Sawant joined the protest. Palestinian labor unions have called on their supporters around the world to refuse dealings with Israeli companies. Solidarity groups say the Zim refused a request by the Seattle port operator to leave and is asking the city's mayor to intervene. As baking heat in large parts of California continues for another day, the state's electric grid operator has called another flex alert for this evening from 6 to 9 p.m., asking Californians to keep thermostats to 78 degrees and not run major appliances. Portions of the state will experience temperatures into the 100 degrees. Palm Springs yesterday tied an all-time high temperature of 123 degrees. Governor Gavin Newsom signed an emergency declaration that would free up additional power if needed. Brian Ferguson is with the State Office of Emergency Services. His remarks emailed to reporters. We're trying to do everything we can to keep the power on. We are just at the beginning of summer, and certainly we have a number of challenges that we're looking at. The heat wave is afflicting much of the western U.S. Zambia's first president, Kenneth Kaunda, has died at the age of 97. Zambian President Edgar Lungo announced the country will hold 21 days of mourning. Kaunda was a leader of the campaign that ended British colonial rule. He led the country until 1991 when he was defeated in an election following the introduction of multi-party politics. During his rule, Kaunda made Zambia a center for anti-colonial groups fighting to end white minority rule in southern African nations, including Angola, Mozambique, Namibia, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. 
I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and it is our weekly roundtable. And I'd like to welcome our panelists. Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program, works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she is a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish-language publications. Laura is also a television host and a commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. Good to be here. And Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She's a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thanks for inviting me. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He is also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Horn, I'm sure you have something else in the works you usually do. Is that the case, or are you taking a much-needed break from uh, being so prolific in your publication of books? Well, when we discuss Juneteenth, I'll share with the audience some new revelations about the backdrop to that, which should have been published by now, but I've been laboring through the pandemic and the lockdown. All righty. Well, indeed, we are going to be going directly into a discussion on Juneteenth. So we look forward to hearing all about that. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, on Saturday, June 19th, the United States now marks Juneteenth, known as Freedom Day, as an official holiday. Uh, Let us go to a clip of New Yorkers reacting to Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday. was passed in both the House and Senate and signed into law by President Biden. Let's go to that clip now. History at the White House today as President Biden signs a bill making Juneteenth a federal holiday. The day will commemorate the end of slavery in America. And tomorrow, millions of people will recognize the significance. CBS 2's Dick Brennan has reaction from New Yorkers. We can't um, overlook the small steps that the country is taking to recognize something so important. New Yorkers like Amona White, who's a math teacher in the Bronx, sees the signing of the Juneteenth National Independence Day into law as an important move on a long road to justice. Now we can all celebrate as one because we're all still in the process of being liberated, but this is a good step in the right direction. June 19, 1865 was the day a Union general arrived in Galveston, Texas, to inform enslaved people they were free, two months after the end of the Civil War and two years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Am I supposed to express the joy? 94 year old Opal Lee was the driving force behind making Juneteenth a federal holiday. I'm not supposed to express all the years that we've worked and to it come to fruition on the backs of so many people. 
Juneteenth has become a day to celebrate black history and culture. Rehearsals have begun for this weekend's Juneteenth NYC Festival in Brooklyn's Herbert Von King Park. So really looking at supporting the community overall over the entire weekend. People here hope the new Juneteenth holiday leads to a fresh dialogue. We got to get people talking with each other and listening to each other. That's something that's been woefully missing in our country over the last several years. Kevin Powell is a civil rights activist in Brooklyn who says national demonstrations have triggered a new national dialogue. I have hope, I have optimism, but it's going to take all of us being willing to sit down at the table and having some difficult and sometimes uncomfortable conversations. Most federal offices will be closed tomorrow, but the post office will remain open. Juneteenth has been a New York state holiday since last year. State workers get a day off, but if they're required to work, they get a comp day. Maurice and Christine. All right, Dick, thank you. Thank you. All righty. And uh, Laura Carlson, we're going to start with uh, you there. I mean, it seems as though in the in the Senate, even Hawley, <laughs> who is a, a, a Trumpster, um, voted for uh, this piece of legislation. And of course, a lot of us are celebrating, as we generally do celebrate uh, Juneteenth, uh, fundamentally as a day where we get together with friends and family and community and remember our history. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, it's leading, leading up to Freedom Day tomorrow called Freedom Day or Jubilee Day. Uh, but Laura Carlson, we know very well that that is far from the case in terms of black and brown people in the United States. But I'm wondering how you're seeing people south of the border um, react uh, to this. Uh, certainly, we know there is a population of African descent in Mexico and throughout Central and Latin America, and they're pretty oppressed uh, there. Laura Carlson, your um, ideas on, on the news and, and the wider implication, if you think it will have an impact in other parts of the region. Well, I think it is an advance because, as the speakers noted, it forces a national discussion in workplaces, in schools, in communities. What happened on June 19th? Why is slavery important to come to grips as a founding pillar of our society? And it's also an, option, an opportunity for celebration of the history of resistance. Uh, there's a fear that it could represent a whitewashing effort that uh, it really depends on the responsibility of everyone to take it further as a nation. The uh, Senator Raphael Warnock, I think, put it well when he said, I would hope that we would not cash in substantive change for an opportunity to commemorate. I think commemoration ought to drive change and not be a substitute for change. There was a lot of talk about equality in the signing of the resolution but we also have to remember that equality in a fundamentally discriminatory system uh, doesn't work, that it has to be a part of really changing that system. Here in Latin America, there's been a long history, just relatively recently actually, of uh, transitional justice and historical memory. And so I really place this in that framework. It's a process of truth-finding, of history-telling, and of the formation of this collective memory. So when we look at processes like in Guatemala, beginning to take to court the perpetrators of the genocidal campaigns in the 80s, or of what's happening in terms of prosecutions and remembering as a society the military dictatorships, the disappearances and the assassinations in South America, 
it's created a, a big movement that this really forms part of. Unless a society can come to grip with its own history and not just remember it, but also um, begin to take steps to, to formally deal with it, then there's no way to move on to a more just society. And talking about taking steps, one of the things that has to be remembered in the context of this Juneteenth uh, commemoration is that it takes a lot more than that. In those other countries, we're talking about legislation, and we're talking about judicial hearings. We're talking about giving a forum for listening to victim stories, but not just as victims, but as historical figures with agency of overcoming deep fears and hatreds and the need for, for more formal measures. In that sense, I think the obvious next step is to talk, and there is talk already, about reparations. We've seen this in the Manhattan Beach case, which I found fascinating, the return of Bruce's Beach to a black family from whom it was confiscated, a property worth $75 million. And there's cities throughout the country, Evansville, Illinois, with the reparations for housing, Asheville, North Carolina, with community reparations in black neighborhoods. You know, there's a number of communities that are beginning to take these steps. There's pushback, too. We see it with the 1619 Project of the New York Times. Uh, the Manhattan Beach City Council pronounced, you know, we're not the Manhattan Beach of 100 years ago. Today's residents are not responsible for the actions of others 100 years ago. Well, that's exactly the point. It's not the Manhattan Beach of 100 years ago. Now it's a wealthy white community with a 1% black population. And everybody is responsible for that, for the way history has evolved into deeper and deeper levels of inequality. This is an important move. It comes in a global context of reconsidering and redefining both history and its role in moving forward. Right. Thank you for that, Laura Carlson. And Jackie Goldberg, I mean, all of this within the con uh, context, some people are saying, well, great that it's a national holiday, but are we going to be allowed to teach it in the schools? Uh, we know about the, the, the hysteria over the teaching of, of what is called critical race theory. And in Texas, for example, Republican Governor Greg Abbott has signed a bill prohibiting state teachers from discussing topics related to critical race theory. The bill entitled HB 3979 regulates the curriculum and topics taught in state-funded schools uh, around U.S. history involving uh, people of color. And, and Jackie Goldberg, this is being repeated, these kinds of attempts uh, in many states across the country. And I read an article, I think last week, of a, a state, I'm sorry, I don't recall what it is right now that was threatening to fine teachers, to have teachers pay a fine if they dare to uh, teach this history. So Jackie Goldberg, within that context, your reaction then to all of what is happening now around Juneteenth? Well, you know, it's, it's a great thing to have a federal holiday, a national holiday, uh, reminding us that uh, it took more than two years uh, for people to be actually emancipated after the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, but I think this fight over critical race theory is based on the idea that we really don't want in, to have our children have to come to grips with the history of the United States as it really happened. 
You know, critical race theory is just an idea that says that you must look at things more um, in terms of a racial reckoning. You must look at the history of the United States through a lens that says that lots of things that we were told were simply just, oh, just decisions that we decided to do to have police and so forth and so on. When we know that the origin of police, at least during the time before the Civil War and during the Civil War and afterward, was to catch runaway slaves. We don't teach that necessarily. The whole notion that you can have a holiday but don't do anything about dealing with the issues that are around it is what some people are hoping for. I think that was the vote in the state, United States Senate. Woo, shoot, we've taken care of that problem. We don't have to talk about race anymore in America. We've done Juneteenth. You know, that's the kind of crap that does make us need a critical race theory, which says you need to look at how systemically this happened. And just to give you some examples, public schooling was based on basically getting farm kids off the farm and into factories. That's why being tardy, being on time, became so important. It became more important than anything, because in a farmer's life, time is sunrise to sunset, right? That's what farmer's life is. You go by the sun. In schools and in factories, you have to be on time. You have to be there every day. Attendance is taken. Attendance becomes more important than almost anything, and tardies are even reported on your report card. Why do I mention that? Because it was to get white workers into those factories. It wasn't to get African-American or Latinx or anybody else into those factories. It was to get white farmer kids off the farms and into factories. The school system is basically based on a system of meeting the cultural needs of, uh, of uh, European Americans. And that is, you know, some of the reason why some people say, oh, my God, look at the education gap. Look at the, oh, my goodness, African American and Latino students do so much worse in school. It must be they're not as smart as our white kids. Well, actually, the problem is, is that the culture of the school is a culture of white culture. And people like us in Los Angeles Unified are trying to change that culture, are trying to say that, no, it's not just enough to have a nice holiday to commemorate the struggle for emancipation, but it's an important thing to understand why it was necessary to have emancipation, why there was slavery, what the effects of slavery are down to the present day. This is not to say, I blame you, white person, for what a white person did to slaves years ago. This is to say that the impact of that still exists it didn't disappear. It isn't over. We are still dealing with laws and laws and laws which have the absolute effect of preventing equality before the law for African Americans and many other people of color and people who are poor. The system is based on race and racism. And if you want to get beyond that, you have to do more than have a holiday you have to have an inquiry, and that's what critical race theory is about. And it is why so many white people are saying, oh, I don't want that in my schools. It'll teach my children to hate themselves. No, it doesn't. Absolutely does not. It, in fact, talks about the fact that in most changes in the uh, outcomes for African Americans in this country, it included coalitions with large numbers of whites, of Asians, of people who were not African American. 
Critical race theory, though, says you cannot stop until you've examined the institutions which continue to hold up inequality, and that includes public schools. Absolutely. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And by the way, the states that have already placed limits against teaching critical race theory include Idaho, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Tennessee, and it seems to be spreading. But Dr. Gerald Horn, the Washington Post has, has an interesting article, the title of which in nationalizing Juneteenth, the U.S. is still late to the hemisphere's party. And they talk about the celebrations of black liberation in the Caribbean. Of course, we know that in places like Jamaica, and the article refers to that, uh, Barbados, Trinidad, and, and Tobago, and other um, places that were, quote unquote, ruled by the UK, by England, that the end of uh, slavery, allegedly, predated emancipation in the United States by almost three decades. And, and Emancipation Day, I know, is definitely celebrated in, in Barbados. Uh, May 21st in Colombia is Afro-Colombian Day, marking the end of slavery uh, there. And of course, Haiti, uh, January 1st, um, the you know, the Haitian Revolution in 1804. And uh, some people um, make the link between the Haitian Revolution and what Jefferson, um, his position, he was alarmed by what was going on. And also, you know, shortly thereafter, you see the, the passage of the uh, Fugitive Slave Act. So Gerald Horn, that's part of the context here. I mean, it's the United States, but it's also the diaspora. But we are anxiously awaiting your thoughts and your analysis uh, on Juneteenth that will be coming out in your new publication, Dr. Horn. Well, first of all, congratulations to the legislators on, legislators on this June 10th, Juneteenth Independence Day bill. Uh, it's a nod to the 1619 Project, which, as you know, devalued 1776 as a founding moment for the United States and instead pointed to what Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times saw as the actual founding, the arrival of Africans on these shores. And I think it's also important to point out that even as we speak, in colleges and in kindergarten, students are being taught that July 4th, 1776, marked the, an abolitionist moment when actually it led to an exponential explosion of enslavement, not to mention indigenous dispossession, and what the former UC Berkeley scholar in his latest book uh, calls white freedom. I'm speaking of Tyler Stovall. Now, with regard to Juneteenth, people need to realize the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, 1863, inked by President Lincoln, uh, only applied where the United States government had no jurisdiction. That is to say, it applied in the rebellion, rebelling states where the Lincoln remit did not extend. It was a war-fighting measure. It was designed to attract the enslaved from the plantations into the Union Army. It was a turning point in terms of the U.S. Civil War. It, the Civil War had not been going very well for the United States government up to that point. And it was designed to affect Texas in the first place. Uh, I think that this narrative that we are being fed about General Granger showing up in Galveston on June 19, 1865, it's really a kind of white savior narrative, and, and it's very distorting. 
what's oftentimes left out is that he was accompanied by 75,000 so-called colored troops or black troops. Why did he need so many black troops accompanying him? Folks need to realize that Texas was the Confederate state least damaged by the U.S. Civil War, not least because of its connection to then French Seas Mexico and its connection to both Matamoros, a Tex uh, Mexican port city, and Tampico, which supplied the Confederacy through Galveston. You even had slave owners from Louisiana, Mississippi, were exporting their enslaved Africans to Texas to make a last stand as the Civil War was coming to a close. And that's one of the reasons why even today Texas has the largest black population in the United States of America, 3.9 million, larger than most states, including such states as Wyoming and Vermont, and despite a constant outflow of black Texans to California. The idea in the spring of 1865 was to continue the U.S. Civil War through Texas and to continue slavery in league with French-backed Mexico. That, of course, points to the importance of the Cinco de Mayo holiday uh, marked on these shores uh, uh, every uh, year so far. And what happened is that the 75,000 Negro troops were going to be an anvil as the Mexican troops, led by Benito Juarez, the eventual leader of Mexico, pressed from the south to squeeze the French-based uh, Mexican troops and the French troops, uh, and that eventually succeeded. You even had the spectacle of Jefferson Davis, the Confederate leader, fleeing Richmond for Texas, where he planned to continue the U.S. Civil War and to continue slavery, you even had the spectacle of Matthew Fontaine Maury, who had a statue in his honor erected in Richmond until last year. He was in charge of rallying the Confederate leaders in Mexico and arranging for enslaved Africans from the United States to descend on Mexico, even though slavery had been abolished in Mexico in 1829, which had led to Texas seceding from Mexico in the first place. You even had the French import African troops from Algeria, which France had colonized in 1830, and also from Egypt and Sudan to fight the U.S. Negro troops and to fight Benito Juarez's troops. Now, that's the ultimate lesson of Juneteenth. That is to say, it's a trans-border question, it's a global question, it's an international question, and that's what's been missing in the discussion thus far. And it also, I'm afraid to say, exposes some of the debilities and frailties of the U.S. left, which has failed to acknowledge that slavery was the cruelest of class-based relationships, and the descendants of the enslaved have been in the vanguard of class struggle, and the Juneteenth bill helps to illustrate that because it delivers to all working people yet another paid holiday with the last one being, of course, the Martin Luther King paid holiday enacted in 1983.
Well, Dr. Horn, we're going to need to do a whole in-depth um, um, piece with you so you could really expand further on that. I know you gave a, a summary, but it is just amazing. A lot of what you shared with us, information, um, many of us, I certainly didn't know. I think many of our audience did not as well. But uh, Dr. Horn, before we, we leave you and, and go into station break, though, I will have to ask you to tell our audience a bit about the first reconstruction and its destruction because a lot of violence happened uh, after so-named emancipation. So tell us about that because right now there is a call, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. They are calling for a third reconstruction, uh, they say, addressing poverty from the bottom up. But tell us a, a bit about that first reconstruction and how and why it was destroyed, Dr. Horn. Well, the first Reconstruction extends from the end of the U.S. Civil War up until the election, presidential election of 1876, where through manipulations of the Electoral College, the former slave owners are able to put in office a president who then withdraws federal troops from Dixie, which then allows the Ku Klux Klan to run roughshod over the interests of the newly emancipated fundamentally depriving them of the right to vote, trying to drive them back into a kind of neo-slavery. It also ties into this Juneteenth narrative I just enunciated, because many of the Frenchmen who were involved in this failed effort to seize Mexico then moved on to Louisiana, where they were involved in massacres of black people in Louisiana. And once again, there's an African angle, because many of these Frenchmen, or some of these Frenchmen, and some of their Confederate comrades, also then moved on to Egypt, where by the late 1860s they were involved in an attempt by Egypt to seize Ethiopia, which of course failed, but had been a long-standing goal of the Cairo elites. So certainly the second Reconstruction is the period involving the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and obviously we need a third Reconstruction in order to make the promise of the second Reconstruction and the first Reconstruction real. Right. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Horn. We're going to take our station break and stay with us because when we return, we'll hear from our panelists a, a few other things happening in D.C., happening in Congress uh, around uh, a voting rights bill, also the George Floyd Act. And then there have been some significant rulings by the Supreme Court. And then, of course, on the international front, a lot going on there. So stay with us. You won't want to miss any of this. We'll be right back. We who believe in freedom and that freedom Yes, sing it with us. Come on. We who believe in freedom and that freedom to the To me, young people come first. They have the courage where we fail. And if I can but shed some light as they carry us through the gate. 
Friday, and that is Ella's song by Sweet Honey and the Rock. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable with our panelists, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. To check out our website at sochuradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. And our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. And we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud today. We'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud uh, listeners in that great state of Texas. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners throughout the African uh, diaspora. And I do have to, if I don't run out of time, I want now to wish each and every one of you who are marking the Juneteenth holiday a very uh, happy Juneteenth holiday, even as we continue to struggle. There is something to be said for black joy as being part of expressing our liberation as well. Um, It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. And before we move on to our international front, there are just a couple of really quick pieces um, we would like to to do about what is happening in uh, Washington, D.C. And um, Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to go to you because there have been a few rulings recently by the Supreme Court, one of them Fulton versus Philadelphia, on whether a Catholic adoption agency could be mandated to um, assist LGBTQ couples when child adoptions um, countermand, as they say, uh, religious beliefs. And the court favored um, the Catholic charity that that filed this. Of course, Obamacare, once again, um, the attempts to strike it down didn't happen. And then there was an interesting uh, ruling on having to do with chocolate and children being exploited in West Africa uh, to, by Nestle and other U.S. companies so we could enjoy the chocolate. So there's that, Jackie Goldberg, and then the ongoing business with the Voting Rights Act, where the Republicans are now rejecting Senator Manchin's uh, weakened version of the bill. (laughs) Your thoughts on all this, Jackie Goldberg? Well, in terms of the uh, in terms of the gay rights and and religious liberty, this court seems to be willing to say that religious liberty trumps gay rights in almost every case. I mean, that's basically what they've been doing. So this was no surprise, but it was certainly a uh, disappointment. Uh, It says that, uh, you know, the uh, Catholic-run foster care agencies' religious beliefs uh, violated the anti-discrimination laws of Philadelphia, and the court sided with uh, the church. That's just the truth. That's the way they're going to go, and we don't think that's going to change. in terms of the uh, <clears throat> case of Obamacare, I think this may probably end any legal attempt to get rid of it. Now they'll try a, a congressional attempt to get rid of it by limiting parts of it if they ever get regain control of either the Senate or the House. They're going to continue to do that. They haven't given up on it. It isn't gone. Uh, but I think that it's, uh, it's a situation where what we're going to have is a... Uh, uh, <clears throat> a change in the uh, way they go after Obamacare instead of going through the courts. Uh, in terms of other co- decisions, I think that the NCA's con- NC2A's control over how student athletes are compensated is going to be uh, done. Uh, however, we have a case coming up in December 
which the court agreed to consider whether it will relax the control of it. This is where, you know, universities and colleges make a fortune off of student athletics by selling tickets and television rights. <clears throat> and the athletes, of course, uh, are on maybe a, 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 a scholarship, but basically they're not in any way really compensated for the fact that they're producing uh, this, this uh, wealth. Uh, what was the other one you wanted me to mention? Uh, right. I, I think that's fine. I, I wanted okay. you to mention a bit about Manchin. Um, oh, yeah. and, well, I think Manchin yeah. now has a real problem because he said, oh, I, I'll show you what to do. We'll, we'll make a deal. And, and then McConnell said, no, it's the same. I think he called it the same crap, I think, as he, the other course, other position. This now leads to a fact that Manchin now is on a little bit of a different situation. He comes from having said he would never support anything unless Republicans supported it. <clears throat> he then tried to get Republicans to support it to prove his point. They proved uh, Biden's point that the Republicans are not going to join in on this, and now the real question is, is will Manchin now move to change the filibuster to get some change in how we guarantee the right to vote to people who already have the right to vote under the Constitution of the United States? Uh, Jackie Goldberg, do you think a, a possible uh, scenario could be that um, with this recent rejection of what some Republicans are calling the Stacey Abrams bill, uh, meaning yeah. what, because she came out and said what she thought Manchin put forward was a, a kind of a good compromise, so to speak, that now the Democrats are in a position to get Manchin's vote on the legislation that they want, but nevertheless lose the war in terms of Manchin not moving on the filibuster and the whole thing going down. Uh, what I do you think, think Jackie? Most, most, I think that's the most likely uh, consequence right now. Because remember, people want to say it's Manchin, but we know, those of us who count these heads, that there are other people who are conservative in conservative states who do not wish to have to vote on changing the rule for the uh, filibuster and who do not want to vote on this bill. It Manchin is the spokesperson for all of them. Uh, and I think that there will be an attempt to pass a Manchin-type bill, but I do not think it will be successful in the Senate. Right. Thank you for that. And, and uh, Laura Carlson, we're now going to move into our international front. And we actually will start with you because our last roundtable, we really wanted to get from you some news about what's going on with these elections uh, south of the border in terms of Peru and uh, Chile. So I'm wondering if you would like to just fill us, fill us in on the latest in both of those areas. Yeah, well, I want to start with Peru because there has not been the kind of international coverage that needs to be uh, taking place right now in terms of the crisis that's going on in Peru. What happened is that in the second round of presidential elections, after 100% of the voting came in, the winner was uh, Pedro Castillo, who's a rural teacher from the Andean region, from a Marxist party called Peru Libre, or Free Peru, and what his election represented was this stark divide between the uh, wealthier citizens that lived in the coastal areas and in the cities and then the vast areas of Peru that are rural, poor, peasant, and indigenous. And they voted this time, and they won. 
so there was an immediate outcry from the opposition, not just the opposition candidate, who is Fuji, Keiko Fujimori, but also from the, the right and the international right. And she has filed a challenge to the election. In Castillo got 50.2% of the votes to her 498 and she's asked for the annulment of 200 votes, and so the Electoral Committee is still going through. And this has been going on for, for over a week now, and it, although it's not likely to succeed, according to all the evidence and the even international observations have said the elections were fair, it's causing extreme instability within the country. Uh, as I mentioned, the international right is getting on board to try to annul or overturn those elections, and if it can't, to completely destabilize the country. Twenty-two former presidents from the ultra-right and right of uh, countries throughout the world, mostly Latin America, wrote a letter saying that no one should be declared president, uh, and there have been other efforts by right-wing organizations to, to completely not recognize the elections. And this takes place in a context in which we've had a number of interesting signs from the region. In Mexico, the center-left president uh, was not up for election, but they were midterms, and he retained the majority in the legislature and won the majority of the state governorships, although there was some setbacks in Mexico City. So overall, it was a confirmation of his of his power within the country and then in Chile there was a vote to elect the delegates to the constitutional assembly and there was a surprising rout of the right wing in both that and in municipal elections in fact they were completely marginalized despite the fact that the country has a right wing president this means that progressive forces will be controlling that process of a new constitution and Chile's move away from a neoliberal model, the same as Mexico's, uh, will be confirmed during that process. And then finally, we have the context of a popular uprising in Colombia, again, against a neoliberal model that was going to tax basic goods and then, then spreaded the, spread the demands into the areas of uh, indigenous peoples protesting against military occupation, the government's undermining of the peace accord. So this is one of the most major um, manifestations that we've seen of, of discontent in Colombia in its, its recent history. We're seeing uprisings, whether they're through the polls or in the streets, of the have-nots, of the people excluded from this neoliberal development model throughout Latin America. It's unfortunately causing violence, but it's also raising hope that there could be some major changes. Well, very good that we have you uh, available to fill us in on this because so much of this we're not getting a focus in um, mainstream media. Thank you so much, Laura Carlson. Uh, Jackie Goldberg and Dr. Horn, before we go to you, though, let's go to a clip now on, from CBSN on uh, the summit, a much-anticipated meeting with uh, Biden and Putin expectations were low going into the summit, but both sides were able to present important issues, create a baseline to work from, and draw their red lines, which there were quite a few. President Biden is back on U.S. soil after an eight-day European trip. 
I did what I came to do. The president ended his tour in Switzerland with a three-and-a-half-hour summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The bottom line is I told President Putin that we need to have some basic rules of the road that we can all abide by. In the wake of high-profile ransomware attacks, Mr. Biden gave Putin a list of 16 infrastructure sectors that need to be off-limits to hackers, including health care, food, and energy. I pointed out to him we have significant cyber capability. He knows it. He doesn't know exactly what it is, but it's significant. The summit began with a handshake and smiles, but ended with few commitments. This is not a kumbaya moment. Each country's ambassador will return to their posts, and the leaders agreed to the creation of working groups for arms control and cyber attacks. I think that both of these sides showed a willingness to understand one another. During his post-summit news conference, Putin seemed to brush off other key issues, like human rights and Americans imprisoned in Russia. What will change their behavior? is that the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. I'm not confident of anything. Russia expert Fiona Hill, who attended President Trump's summit, said Putin acted differently this time. He was a lot less cavalier, and he did seem that he was genuinely trying to move the dial forward somewhat to next set of meetings. President Biden said it will take a few months to see if Putin commits to change. Emory, so will anything come from the summit? As President Biden told reporters yesterday, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, but meetings are already being scheduled to discuss arms control, and those ambassadors are expected to return to their posts shortly. Okay, so Jackie Goldberg, we'll actually start with you on on your thoughts on this um, Putin-Biden meeting, but also, and what came out of it, its implications, but also the G7. Jackie Goldberg. Well, I think that the the Putin-Biden meeting was probably all that could happen at the beginning. I think the thing that they're talking about in terms of self-interest, I think that's probably the most important thing that I saw was happening. You know, there are interests for both sides in not having wars and not having a Cold War and not spending money on rearming and going beyond. There are interests on both sides in limiting Uh, strategic weapons, uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, There are, uh, you know, needs on both sides to not have uh, the other side interfere in its politics. Um, I don't think you're ever going to get uh, Putin to say anything that uh, other than to say uh, it takes one to know one when we talk about human rights. Uh, His attack on the United States is... uh, uh, trying to find out the people who did the insurrection on January 6th uh, uh, is really kind of laughable, but not surprising because it's how he looks at the world. Um, I think the most important thing about it was is that they began talking about self-interest, and I think that is in terms of the two countries working to not increase um, um, not increase tensions, not increase problems between the two, uh, I think that is the way to proceed. And I'm particularly pleased that they're beginning to talk about strategic arms and nuclear arms control. So I think that, that on the whole, uh, not a lot was accomplished, but uh, I think that when Biden says he did what he wanted to do, I think they now know where each other stands, and I think they have a place to work from. Uh, we don't know what they talked about with respect to China. At least I haven't read anything about it, but I presume that they both talked about that as well. In terms of the G7 summit, uh, if you know, they always make nice pronouncements. If they ever do anything about any of them, that would be nice. 
Uh, the 15% corporate tax is way too low on international corporations, way too low. Uh, but if they can actually get anybody to enforce it, it'll be the first time they have. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't ever look for the G7 to be leaders in anything because they talk more than they do. Right, and, and Jackie Goldberg, before we go on to Dr. Horn, I must ask you, though, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because there's now a new prime minister, Netanyahu is out, and if anybody thought things were going to change in, in terms of Israeli-Palestinian um, relations, you only have to see now the, even though there's a truce, the recent continued uh, bombing now of Palestinian territory by this new government, and also the approval of this very provocative uh, march earlier this week, the so-named uh, March of Flags, which was part of what helped to provoke uh, the last flare-up, the last uh, war. Just some quick thoughts from you, Jackie Goldberg. Well, the, the new prime minister is not different than the old one in terms of Arab-Israeli issues. I think the difference is that the new prime minister and the new cabinet want to look at how Israel's economy has gone into the toilet and want to look at the internal conflicts in Israel rather than focus on Palestine. However, once those lit balloons were come, they did what they always do, which is to overreact, to, to bomb excessively, uh, and, you know, the bombing that they do, they claim continuously, is all military aim, but it truly is not. Uh, and they claim that they, uh, there was one particular building in a, an affluent area in the Gaza Strip in which uh, the entire family of a major doctor and his family and all of his relatives were living in the building, and they, their building came down and killed all of them, 44 deaths in one area. And, and what Israel said was, well, we really weren't trying to kill any people. We were trying to get at the uh, tunnels underneath the building. Well, the only way you can get to a tunnel underneath a building is to take down the building, and that's where civilians live. So they don't ever really worry about the civilian deaths if they can so-called reach a military objective. And until they change that... Everything that the Palestinians do in terms of uh, Hamas sending uh, lit balloons over to create some fires will always result in an overreaction militarily because that's who the current uh, prime minister is. Uh, nothing's going to change there, but what is changing, and it is changing, is, is that the Israeli government includes people now who do not want this to continue. And so there will be more internal struggle over this though I do not expect Israeli to change its behavior toward Hamas or toward uh, Gaza anytime soon, or even toward new settlements. Right. Thank you for that, Jackie Goldberg. Dr. Gerald Horn, you'll have the final word here, focusing on this uh, summit that was so anticipated between Putin and, and Biden, uh, still considered two of the world powers, um, and also NATO. But it seems as though um, uh, Russia has now been demoted to likely the number two power because all eyes were on China, even though China was not part of uh, G7. Uh, Dr. Horn, your thoughts on all this? Well, with regard to the Geneva summit, the purpose of the U.S. administration was to try to at least neutralize Moscow because dealing with Moscow 
on a day-to-day aggressive basis obviously distract from the big enchilada, which is the People's Republic of China. But I think the progressive movement in this country needs to consider if the United States can only have positive relations with Russia if you have in power a Boris Yeltsin-type sellout leader or even a Mikhail Gorbachev-type leader who displayed incompetence when he agreed to the reunification of Germany without getting it in writing, allowing NATO to creep ever closer to Russia's borders. Initially, during the Cold War, the United States said the Communist Party had to go. Now they're saying that Putin's party, United Russia, has to go. And if Alexei Navalny, the dissident now imprisoned by some stroke of fate, comes to power, I'm sure that he will also face difficulties because of his Islamophobia, which will complicate relations with France and with a good deal of the Arab world as well. I think also we need to take some, have some perspective on this United States relationship with China, which haunted all of these summits, not only Geneva, but the G7, the EU summit in Brussels, the NATO meeting, etc. And Folks really need to ask, how did China arise? How did it get in the passing lane when in the United States today you have uh, 17 different intelligence agencies that are supposed to help to anticipate such developments? You have a richly endowed military. You have think tanks galore. You have grand strategy programs at universities like Yale. And obviously, there was this overdetermination of the Soviet Union, obsession with the Soviet Union, but that in turn allowed a crushing of class-based organizations in the United States that were perceived as being sort of a mirror image of socialism. That I'm pointing to, of course, the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, which the labor movement in this country has yet to recover from. But what that did was that it empowered capital overwhelmingly. And we all know that capitalism or capitalists will sell you the rope that we need to hang them with. And look at the New York Times series on Apple, for example, where Apple is totally in bed with the People's Republic of China at the time when the United States is launching a Cold War with China. So it seems that uh, it seems to me at least that I don't see any way out of escaping this continued rise of China. And if you look at the trade figures just from this year, uh, year on year, U.S. trade with China is up 41%. Even though there's supposedly a trade war going on, the World Bank says the Chinese economy will grow by 8.5% this year. And we also know that that kind of economic growth has led to this Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is building infrastructure in Africa, Latin America, et cetera. And the G7 came with, with a pale imitation of it, which, interestingly enough, will depend upon borrowing from the People's Bank of China to be successful. All right. Interesting point there. Thank you, uh, Dr. Horn. It was interesting that Putin in his press conference made some reference to Black Lives Matter. It was a little unclear if it was negative or not, while he was, seemed to be excusing the insurrectionists of January 6th. Well, oh well. We are out of time, though. I'd like to thank our panelists. Another fascinating roundtable. If today's show produced by me, that's uh, Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our system producer, Ramirez. 
Alejandro Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives, 1-800-735-0230, or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And y'all, please stay safe. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.